All right, let me switch hats here. Good morning again, everybody. Privileged to be back. We missed you guys last week. Um, I guess it was about uh, 10 years ago, I posted on Facebook, I guess it was the first Sunday of Vintage Church that I'd had to miss a Sunday morning. And I said that uh, 10 years ago that I'd left uh, leading worship in the uh, capable hands of Stephen McNeil, um, and I, that I appreciated his spirit and his mad skills, and I still do. So thank you, Stephen, for uh, leading the songs last week, um, and y'all allowing us to be on vacation for a week, unlike the Holbrooks who've been on vacation for six months. I'm just kidding. I think they'll be back next week. So we're looking forward to uh, them being back. It looks like most everybody is back today, so we're, uh, we're happy about that, and it's good to see everybody. Um, it's good to be able to worship together, and it's a privilege, as always, to be able to share to you from the Word of God today. Um, Today I have a, the privilege of sharing a second sermon of, in this series on what it means to think biblically. Um, five weeks ago, our first sermon of this series, um, sorry, I got facial hair that's rubbing this thing. That's the first time I've ever said that, so that's exciting. Um, five weeks ago, Bryce started our summer sermon series um, with the same idea, thinking biblically. Um, and Bryce discussed what it means to read the Bible exegetically, right? Um, so if you were here, uh, you remember that. And if not, you can go back and listen. We have the sermons online. Um, and to read the Bible exegetically means to read it for what it says, to allow God to speak his objective through, truth through his word rather than us reading into God's word what we want it to say or cherry-picking uh, proof text to justify our presuppositions. And so today, we're going to continue in that same idea of thinking biblically, which is one of our core values. Um, but uh, today, it's my hope to give you a little more practical application on what Bryce discussed five weeks ago. Now, I think that we, of course, can and we should learn how to read the Bible accurately, read it for what God intends it to say. But we also need to learn how to take that truth and apply it in a world that does not believe it. And so that's really my goal today is to equip you uh, to do that a little bit more. Now, you and I are blessed to live uh, in this country, the United States. Um, and the United States of America was established uh, 250 almost years ago with at least a basic understanding of, for most people of what biblical morality looked like. Um, some people like to call that Judeo-Christian values. Um, in fact, we see that uh, in our founding documents. The Declaration of Independence says that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. So there's a basic acknowledgement from our, the founders of this country of this, this basic um, understanding of at least some biblical truth. And while the extent to which Many of the founders were sincere followers of Christ is debatable because we know that some of those guys were, uh, were really deist. Um, it is undeniable that biblical thinking had a great deal of influence in the founding of this country. And basic biblical moral teaching was pretty much generally accepted in the United States of America for a long time. Because there was this sort of just this general acceptance of it. And so as a result, for a long time, most people in America have had at least some basic biblical literacy. Um, even if they weren't necessarily Christians, they kind of had some idea of what the Bible taught, at least as it relates to moral things. Um, most people had, uh, for, 
for most of this country's history, uh, at least a vague familiarity with the Ten Commandments. They had probably heard the Beatitudes before. They knew um, a little bit about who Jesus was, his birth, his life, his res—excuse me, his resurrection. But increasingly, I think that we, we see that changing in the culture that we live in here in America. And I think that it's changing pretty rapidly. Um, many people today are biblically illiterate. Um, maybe they've never even read the Bible for themselves. Unfortunately, this even happens with people who claim to be Christians, and, and they may claim affiliation with something called a church, and yet uh, even then, uh, many of those people are biblically illiterate. They may call themselves Christians, but they may have no idea how to think biblically like we're learning to do here. Because not only do many people not sit under regular, accurate biblical preaching and teaching, many people rarely, if ever, actually read the Bible, read what it has to say for themselves. So not only do we face an increasingly biblically illiterate culture, but even worse, we really more and more face a biblically hostile culture. I mean, people don't even agree anymore. We don't have this basic consensus on terminology um, thing, or these long understood truths that people have always agreed on. Those are being called into question today. We are living in a world that often openly rejects what we are called to, which is biblical thinking. And so what are you and I to do about this? We live in a world that is increasingly biblically illiterate and even more biblically hostile. What are we to do about that problem? So I have an illustration, and we don't usually do this sort of thing, um, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, In order to illustrate what we are called to do, I want to draw a parallel between how we are called to stand for biblical truth and how we can examine counterfeit money. Okay? Okay. So I asked Jovi if she'd come and help me out, and Eileen's going to come be her moral support. And here in my wallet are a $100 bill and a counterfeit $100 bill that I committed a, probably a federal crime to produce for this sermon illustration. So, <laughs> all right. So here's what I'd like for you to do. I'd like for you to take a look at both of these bills. You can take them. Here. Sorry. I'm a little cold up here. And if you, see if you can tell me which one's fake. You think this is the fake one? All right. What do you think looks real and what looks fake about it? All right, so let me give you a hint. Either can you tell? You see him? I already told you. Don't actually don't give it away. All right. <laughs> so so a real dollar bill is actually not printed on paper. It's printed on cotton. And it has texture, and it has watermarks when you hold it up to the light. You see that? See that? This one was poorly cut out. You see the white edge on it? So feel the difference again. Can you feel the difference? Does this one feel like fabric, and this one feel a little more smooth, no texture to it? Yeah, they're different, right? All right. So I was going to give you the fake bill, but I think that's also a federal crime. So this is me on video evidence. Wait, I got the right one. Okay. <laughs> All right, there we go. Thank you very much, Jovi and I. All right, we'll put the $100 bill back. Okay, so there we go. All right, so we can tell the difference in a fake $100 bill and a real $100 bill. Um, John MacArthur said that federal agents don't learn to spot counterfeit money by studying the counterfeits. They study genuine bills until they master the look of the real thing, and then when they see the bogus money, they recognize it. 
And so you and I must be able to detect counterfeits. Now, with money, um, the way that a fake is able to be detected is by being so familiar with the real thing that the fake just doesn't feel or look real, although I guess I could have fooled uh, somebody because my kids picked the wrong bill too to begin with, so maybe I'm better at this counterfeit thing than I thought. Um, the same thing is true for biblical thinking. If you and I are called to think biblically, we have to be so familiar with what the Bible teaches that we are easily able to spot false doctrine when it rears its ugly head. We have to be so familiar with the truth that the lie is easy to pick out. And even more, we are not called just to be able to see what is false and call it out. We have to be able to understand what makes the counterfeit a counterfeit. And we have to be able to articulate why it is not biblical truth. Because we are filled in a world with counterfeit truth. And, but you and I, we know the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. And we have to be prepared to make the case for the truth. To spot the counterfeit, yes, but also to make the case for the truth. We saw this in 1 Peter 3 recently where Peter tells us, Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And, and church, our faith is defensible against the counterfeits of the world. So with that in mind, I want to uh, discuss how we can be best prepared to think biblically in an unbiblical culture. Now, the early church, of course, existed under the Roman Empire, and they faced a very similar challenge to the one that you and I face today. Under the persecution of the Roman Empire, they lived in a culture like ours that was openly hostile to Christianity and to the truth that God has revealed to us in his word. So in his second letter to Timothy, the Apostle Paul offered an exhortation that it, when you read it, it seems very much like it could have been written today. So I want to read that to you from uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4. Um, that's the next set of slides down if you are putting them on the screen back there. Um, so if you have uh, a copy of God's Word, turn to first, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, or you can pull it up on your app or see it on the screen behind me hopefully. I want to read to you the first five verses of 2 Timothy chapter 4. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Let's pray. God, I pray that uh, we would listen to uh, Paul's exhortation to Timothy, Lord, and that we would take it to heart. Lord, for we do indeed live in a world where people have wandered off from the truth, Lord, and they bind to ridiculous myths, or often without even realizing it. Lord, and if we are not careful, we can be influenced by those same unbiblical ideas. God, I pray that you would help us to be so familiar with your word, with the truth that you have revealed to us in it, that when counterfeits rear their ugly head, Lord, we can not only spot them and call them out, Lord, but that we can refute them with grace as we do the work of an evangelist, as we preach the gospel to the lost. Or if we don't merely want to uh, curse the darkness, Lord, for we have a lighthouse, and his name is Christ. 
So God, I pray that you would uh, teach us, that you would uh, allow these truths to be planted deep in our hearts, Lord, that we might be able to stand as a light in the darkness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So in this text, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul tells us that the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They will, he said, they'll turn away from listening to the truth, and they'll wander off into myths. And you read that, you think, he said the time is coming. Well, I think we can pretty clearly see that time has come. I mean, perhaps no description has ever been written for the state of human vanity than this. We see this sort of attitude all around us in our culture, even in places that claim to be churches, unfortunately. People indeed are drawn to teachers that make them feel good, that suit their own passions, that tickle their itching ears. And people often reject sound teaching with no regard for what is the truth. Now, it would be impossible, or at least um, you wouldn't appreciate it because it would take too long. It would be difficult for me to cover every biblical topic that we need to understand as Christians in one sermon. So I'm not going to do that. Um, hopefully, if you're here regularly, as you sit under sound biblical preaching here at Vintage, and hopefully as you grow in the knowledge and the understanding of God's word, as you read it individually on your own, Hopefully you are already being equipped to know the truth deeply. And by God's spirit, hopefully you're growing in biblical discernment. And you're learning to stand for the truth in a world that is filled with falsehood. And so again, I'm not going to try to cover every uh, way in which we must be able to think biblically in an unbiblical world. Uh, so I've decided to just uh, pick three. The uh, these commonly accepted myths, if you will, that are common in our culture. These commonly accepted ideas that are unbiblical. And I want to discuss how we can be prepared to not only think biblically about these three ideas, but also how we can engage with them for the purpose of showing people the truth of the gospel. Um, you probably saw at the beginning of that passage that we just read in 2 Timothy 4, Paul is speaking specifically to preachers in that passage. But I think these principles are applicable for all believers, as with many other things in the New Testament. You know, when we look at qualifications for elders and deacons. These are, these are things that apply to all believers. It's just that preachers have to exemplify them in this case. Um, all Christians are called to stand for the truth. Um, so Paul says here, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Repro reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And then at the end of that passage, he goes on to tell us to always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. You and I, as we've talked about, when we've talked about living missionally, we are all called to ministry because we are all called to live missionally, to be proclaimers of the gospel wherever God has us. And so Paul's words here apply to all of us. And so let's look at some of the pseudo-religious ideas that are prevalent in our culture so that we can always be ready to reprove, rebuke, and exhort, as he calls us to, with complete patience as we seek to fulfill our calling to make disciples. It's doing the work of an evangelist. All right, so three ideas for you. The first unbiblical idea that I want to examine with you that is probably one that you're familiar with because we see it everywhere, and that's the idea of karma. This is a weird outline if you look at it apart from the sermon, but karma is the first point. Uh, people love this idea of karma. 
described simply. Karma is the idea that what goes around comes around. You get what you deserve. Karma is formalized in other religions like Buddhism and Hinduism because they believe that what you do in this life uh, has an impact on your next reincarnated life. In fact, in the, the original teaching of karma, the idea of karma and reincarnation are inseparable. They're kind of part of the same system. But this sort of formal religious idea of karma, that's not really what I'm talking about because um, I don't think... Uh, there's a ton of Buddhists or Hindus that most of us engage with on a regular basis. And maybe you do and you should. And this is an idea that needs to be refuted. Um, that is where the idea of karma originated in those religions. But um, what I'm talking about is a more secular idea of karma. And we do encounter that in secular culture. Karma is the idea that people eventually get what is coming to them. Even if it takes a while. And to be honest, karma is a relaxing thought. It's nice to think that when people do horrible things, they will eventually face consequences for them. Now, you can see this lots of places, particularly on social media, where people sell these sort of trite uh, pop psychology memes. Um, often, people who feel like they've been wronged by others, uh, they like to share these things, that people are going to get what uh, is coming to them. Ironically, often the people who share those, they love the idea of karma, just not for themselves, right? They love it for everybody else. Karma for thee, but not for me. Um, so it's easy to understand the appeal of this idea of karma. Uh, it appeals to our innate desire for justice. I think that we have a desire for justice that's planted there because we're created in the image of God. It appeals to our desire for wrongs to be made right, it appeals to our understanding that actions ought to have consequences. So what's the problem? Why is karma not, an, uh, not a biblical idea? Doesn't scripture tell us in Galatians 6 that whatever one sows, he will also reap? No, it does. Scripture teaches that principle. It also teaches that actions have consequences. But if you read that full passage in Galatians 6, you can clearly see the problem. And you can see the Bible doesn't advocate karma like that. Galatians 6, 7 through 9 says this. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Now can you see the difference there? in what the world teaches about karma and what uh, Galatians is telling us about sowing what you reap, reaping what you sow, just kidding. Um, first of all, as Christians, we understand that as Hebrews 9.27 tells us, man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. So we understand reincarnation is not a thing. There is no second chance. There is no future life where we get to have another shot. Not a future life on this earth anyway. Even in this life, the idea that we will get what we deserve doesn't hold up. We see that all around us. As Solomon observed in Ecclesiastes 8, verse 14, he said, There are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. Life is not fair. We don't always see this principle at work. Things don't always come out fair according to our understanding of justice. But you know what, church? We should praise God for that. 
We should praise God that things are not always fair because if things were always fair, we would all go straight to hell. As one of my favorite lyrics says, the beauty of grace is that it makes life not fair. If what goes around comes around, you and I are doomed. But because we are rebellious sinners, uh, we deserve eternal separation from God. But Ephesians 2 tells us that it's by grace you have been saved through faith. And it's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. See, the reason that karma, as the world teaches it, is unbiblical is because it's anti-gospel. It flies in the face of grace. While it's true that people do deserve the consequences of their sin, and apart from Christ, they will undoubtedly receive the consequences of their sin, it's also true that God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Isn't that good news that we don't get what we deserve if we're in Christ? When you see the world hell-bent on this vengeful idea that people should get what's coming to them, you have a perfect opportunity to agree, but then to show them the grace of Jesus, who, who paid those very consequences through his atoning death on the cross. The world demands karma. Jesus offers forgiveness and it's we see in this scripture that when we sow to the spirit from the spirit we reap the benefits of eternal life and that grace is available to all who call on the name of Jesus for forgiveness of their sins praise God that life isn't fair but that God is gracious so that's karma for you now you can refute all the songs about it um, so let's move on to another idea that's one Another unbiblical idea that is commonly accepted in our culture that we have to be prepared to think biblically about is the idea of universalism. That's the second one. Now, universalism is the idea that all people ultimately will be saved, all people will be restored to a right relationship with God, that all people go to heaven when they die. Now, there are churches uh, that teach this. Uh, they're, they're crazy churches um, uh, that don't hold to orthodox biblical Christianity. Um, and it is a specific doctrine taught in those chur churches. And the way that they teach it is by pulling uh, specific verses out of context in order to justify it and ignoring the ones that are inconvenient. Um, but as with the sort of specific uh, Buddhist Hindu idea of karma, I'm not really talking about the, the doctrine of universalism, like the, this formal religious belief that some people do study and teach in so-called churches. What I'm talking about more specifically is this sort of generally accepted cultural idea that everybody goes to heaven, or at least uh, nobody goes to hell because people don't like that part. Now, I think if you asked most people, at least around where we live, most secular people wouldn't say this outright, uh, that they, they affirm the idea that everybody goes to heaven, that nobody goes to hell. But I think that it's pretty easy to observe that most people do practically believe it, or at least they assume it. Maybe they never think deeply about it, but, the, but there's just sort of this basic assumption that everybody goes to heaven. Um, and you can see this pretty clearly when somebody dies. And people post their memorials to this person on social media. 
Um, now, I can't tell you the number of times that I have known of someone who passed away. And perhaps this person lived entirely for themselves, no regard for others, very selfish existence. They had no commitment to Christ, no involvement uh, in the church, no real faith or moral living to observe. And when, when they die, everything that people has to say about them implies they are in a better place, that their, their pain and suffering is over. Um, people say, fly high, or my personal favorite, heaven gained another angel, they like to say. Now, I don't want to spend a whole thing on this, but as an aside, uh, that idea, heaven gained another angel, that's foreign to what the Bible teaches us. People do not become angels when they die. That's an unbiblical idea. People don't get wings when they die, even if they're Christians. The Bible never says this. The Bible never implies this. Um, angels are an entirely different category of created beings, the Bible teaches us. And the glimpses in Scripture that we do have of believers who have gone to be with the Lord after death, most notably of Moses and Elijah on the mountain of transfiguration where uh, Jesus sees them there, it showed them with glorified bodies, but they were not angelic beings. They, they did not become angels. So I hate to tell you this, but you need to forget every uh, movie, that you, uh, everything that every movie about angels ever taught you, including It's a Wonderful Life and City of Angels and Michael. and they're all, they're all garbage when it comes to what the Bible teaches about angels. You will not become an angel, but if you're in Christ, you will get a reward that's far better than earning your wings, right? Because of the resurrection of Christ, those who are in Christ will receive a glorified, sinless, eternal body. And it's far better than this idea of being transformed into an angel. All right, so that's my soapbox for the day. You do not become an angel when you die. Uh, back to universalism. Now, I know when people die and people post these uh, you know, comforting things. I know it's comforting for people to romanticize their memories of people, even horrible people, uh, when they die. I think that's natural. Um, I, I, you know, you, you'll see that, and I think that is, it's okay that people do that. Because we do want to focus on the good things about people after they die. But as Christians, we have to be careful because we never want to be complicit in promoting this idea that there is no eternal punishment for those who die without Christ. Because scripture clearly teaches us otherwise. Scripture does not teach us universalism. It teaches us of the atonement of Jesus that applies for the, to those who would trust in him. Now, I'm not telling you uh, that you need to tell people who recently had one pass away in their family that their loved one probably went to hell. I'm not telling you to do that because there's probably no way to do that in a way that offers grace and comfort and shines the light of Christ to them. However... Jesus does say in Matthew 25, 46, that the unsaved will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Acts 4, 12 says that salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other, na no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So scripture is very clear that those who do not come to saving faith in Christ will spend eternity separated from God. This is the reality revealed to us in God's word. And it is the reason that Jesus died for us to bear that punishment instead so that we don't have to face those consequences. Now people like this idea that everybody goes to heaven, nobody goes to hell because uh, they are uncomfortable with the thought that they are sinners 
and that they deserve separation from God and that they need a Savior named Jesus. Assuming that someone can reject or be indifferent to God's salvation through Christ and still go to heaven and be saved from hell, that's to make light of the holiness and the justice of God. And worse, it's to make the sacrifice of Jesus upon the cross absolutely pointless. So as we seek to offer grace to the lost, let's do so in a way that clearly articulates what Scripture teaches us about heaven and about hell. And may we plead with people to repent of their sin, to place their faith in Jesus, who's the only one who offers eternal life in heaven. So there's two ideas for you. We have karma and we have universalism. Again, not the formal teachings, but sort of the generally culturally accepted truth. And I hope, maybe I see these more than you, but I hope you, you, you know what I'm talking about and you've seen these sorts of things and hopefully this will help you uh, respond to them. All right, number three. Um, the last cultural idea I'd like to discuss that stands at odds with our call to think biblically is the idea of biblical revisionism. Biblical revisionism is the idea that Scripture needs to be reinterpreted through the, a modern lens and as a result of modern scholarship. Now, people who advocate this idea believe that we should re-examine everything that the church has historically taught and believed about the Bible and about what it says. And they also believe that we are free to challenge and change our views in light of our modern and more enlightened understandings. Now again, like karma and like universalism, revisionism is a specific academic discipline that often secular historians openly engage in. Um, but again, I'm not really talking about the formal revisionism. You're not going to probably find people who say, oh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a revisionist. Um, I'm not talking about this formal scholarly belief um, in fact, most people who I think subscribe to this don't even know this term. They probably haven't heard the idea, uh, what they haven't, probably haven't heard revisionism. But I do believe that people are heavily influenced by revisionism, and many people buy into revisionism. Um, in fact, almost any time you hear someone appeal to being on the right side of history when it comes to morality, they are almost always saying that the old orthodox ideas of biblical morality ought to be re-examined and rejected. It's not always what they mean, but that's usually a red flag that you're dealing with someone who's a revisionist. Um, because they believe that we who live in the 21st century, um, we are more enlightened. We shouldn't be bound by ancient moral teaching because, after all, we're in the 21st century. We have the internet, right? Um, now, it's hard to understand how prominent this idea of revisionism is in our culture. Whether or not people understand that that's an idea they're being influenced by or not, uh, they probably are. Uh, I don't know if you've seen this. Um, on the Internet, right now, you can don't, don't look this up right now, please, or maybe ever. Uh, there is this AI Jesus on Twitch. Have you all seen this? Anybody seen the AI Jesus on Twitch? It became popular over the past few months. Um, it's an artificial intelligence version of... Jesus, sort of, um, and it's a video that streams 24-7 on Twitch, um, and people, oh, hang on, I want to describe it well, it's a 24-7 video stream where people can type in questions, and then they are answered by this Jesus-looking dude um, who's like AI-generated video, and then his actual 
responses, I guess, are generated by chat GPT. Um, so there's a voice response. So that you can see this cartoony-looking, you know, Renaissance Jesus talking to you and responding to these questions. Now, obviously, there's blasphemy there, um, so that's a problem. Uh, but if you waste any time watching the bizarre AI Jesus on Twitch answer questions, you quickly realize they are drawn from a revisionist understanding of who Jesus was because somebody is behind dumping the information into uh, what these you know, chatbots mine for, for their answers, right? Um, and this revisionist version of Jesus, he's a hippie, uh, he's, he's very passive, um, you know, it's very, very much not the Jesus that is revealed to us in Scripture. Uh, for example, uh, when somebody asked the AI Jesus about gender and sex, the AI Jesus responded, it's important to understand that God's love is universal and that he loves every single person regardless of their sexual orientation. The primary teachings of Christianity emphasize the importance of love, compassion, and truth. Okay, so it's very much like that, right? It's very soft. Um, you know, pretty, pretty bizarre. And, but people are actively going to this page. At any given time, there's hundreds, at least, uh, hundreds of people typing in questions to AI Jesus um, on Twitch. And people are actively seeking unbiblical answers from this artificial intelligence, which is terrifying, honestly, that people look to that for moral answers. Um, in fact, related to that response uh, from the AI Jesus about gender and sexuality, the most prominent area of culture where we see the ideas of the biblical revisionist heart at work are in that LGBT movement. Uh, for example, uh, if you ever engage with, uh, with, with these ideas with someone who's involved in that movement, when it comes to homosexuality, the church has always taught and uh, what Scripture clearly teaches in both the Old and New Testament, and that is... Culture doesn't like it, but that is that homosexual practice is sinful in the eyes of God. Now, people get, attempt to get around this when they're a revisionist by saying, oh, we are simply reading those scriptures incorrectly. Uh, there's certain words and passages, they've just been misinterpreted. Now, for example, they'll say that when Paul addresses homosexuality in the book of Romans, Paul couldn't have, have had any concept of adult, consensual, same-sex relationships Paul was referring, uh, referring to pedastery, pederasty, just kidding, pederasty, which was the practice of adult men engaging in a sexual relationship with young boys. Uh, so that, they say that's all that Paul was talking about. They tell you when you consider the historical context of Paul's writing, he couldn't have been referring to what we know of, these consensual same-sex relationships that we have. So therefore, Scripture does not prohibit homosexual relationships. You just gotta, you just gotta understand uh, modern scholarship and read back into Scripture what you wanted to say. Or, related to the idea of universalism, uh, the biblical revisionist will tell you that the words for hell and things like eternal punishment that are used to discuss consequences for sin in the New Testament. Uh, those are simply misinterpreted. The idea of hell was imposed onto Scripture by translators later on. They'll say the same thing about the divinity of Jesus, whether or not he was truly God. They say that the idea of Jesus being God, that wasn't historically part of the biblical narrative, they say, but that modern historical accounts show that was imposed onto the text later by uh, Bible translators and by church leaders. Now, the... I don't know if you've encountered these ideas, but they're very common and they're very prevalent amongst the opponents of Christianity. And the reason why biblical revisionism is such a threat is because it is the exact same thing as the original lie revealed to us in Scripture. 
Remember, when Satan came to Eve in the Garden of Eden to tempt her to eat the fruit, he said to the woman, did God actually say? Now, anytime you see that question being posed, did God actually say? You can be sure that is the tactics of the enemy attempting to get us to question the eternal word of God. And you can always see, starting with that question, did God actually say, you can see this gradual slide down the slippery slope of theological liberalism. And it begins right there. Did God actually say? And I've, I've known people, tragically, who have, who have gone down that slippery slope. It has always started with that question, questioning the word of God, that original lie from the enemy. Once we question the word of God and we think maybe we might know a little bit better than his objective revelation that he has given to us, we buy into that lie. And once we've bought that lie, we will keep buying those revisionist lies until our faith doesn't even resemble Orthodox Christianity. How arrogant can we be? How arrogant such an approach to Scripture is how can we believe that we, with all of our 21st century technology and academia, think that somehow we are the smartest people who have ever lived and everyone else for the past millennia of human history somehow got it wrong? One of the reasons that we chose the name Vintage for this church was because we understand that the old things, the things that have stood the test of time, those ought to hold more weight than any novel interpretation of Scripture. Because you and I, we ought to always be skeptical anytime someone claims to have something new. That doesn't mean it's always wrong, but we should be skeptical of it because it has not stood the test of time. But those vintage things, those original things, like God's Word, have. You and I stand on the shoulders of countless faithful believers who have fought for, even died for, contending for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. How arrogant are we to believe that we are the smartest people who have ever lived? Let's reject that arrogance that assumes that we somehow are more spiritual and more enlightened than they were. Now, this doesn't mean that the church never gets things wrong. The church often gets things wrong. In fact, we stand boldly in the tradition of the Protestant Reformation that over 500 years ago began to, sought, uh, to seek to fix the unbiblical teachings prevalent in the church. We believe in semper reformanda, right? The church must always be in the process of being reformed. Now, of course, that's not because we want to just change for the sake of change or be progressive and cool, or try to make things more palatable for the world. In fact, it's quite the opposite of those things. We believe that we ought to be always reforming so that we can make sure that the fundamental original truths of Scripture that the church was built on do not change. Reforming is a call to return to the orthodox understanding of Scripture, not to revise them to suit our whims and passions. We aren't interested in changing for the sake of our own comfort or um, suiting our own desires. We continue at Vintage Church in the great tradition of the Protestant Reformation because we are prone to wander. We are volatile. 
we are weak and we are needy, but we worship a God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. A God who has called us out of darkness and into marvelous light. A God who is establishing his church and that try as they might, the powers of hell, Scripture teaches us, will not prevail against it. So we believe in reformation here so that we might constantly ask ourselves, is what we are doing in line with what Scripture originally taught? And we also believe, as one of those Reformation uh, principles, in uh, the uh, principle of sola scriptura, which means Scripture alone. We believe here at Vintage that Scripture is the only authoritative and objective standard of truth. We believe that Scripture alone is inerrant and infallible, meaning it is reliable. It is absolutely trustworthy. We believe that Scripture alone is sufficient for salvation, for discipleship, and for sanctification. I love what the Baptist faith and message says about this, which is the statement of faith that we affirm as a body. It says, the Holy Bible was written by men, divinely inspired, and is God's revelation of himself to man. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Therefore, all scripture is totally true and trustworthy. It reveals the principles by which God judges us and therefore is and will remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. All scripture is a testimony to Christ, who is himself the focus of divine revelation. That's solid. We affirm that uh, from the Baptist faith and message. We also affirm in our church covenant that we submit to the authority of Scripture as the final arbiter on all issues. We must stand firm in a world that doesn't do that, that doesn't care, couldn't care less about what Scripture has to say. We must stand firm in a world that sometimes in subtle ways, but other times in openly hostile ways, rejects the timeless authoritative truth of God's holy word. Paul exhorts us in 2 Timothy 3, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. As God continues that work in us, as God continues to make us complete and equipped for every good work that he has called us to, may we rely on scripture alone as our objective, unchanging authority. We are called church to think biblically. And as difficult as that task can be in a world that openly rejects biblical thinking, we have the power of the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to the truth, to help us recognize and respond to the counterfeits that the world offers us. So as, as we were challenged earlier, may we always be ready in season and out of season to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. By God's grace, as we grow in the knowledge and the understanding of his word, may God keep transforming our hearts and renewing our minds and sanctifying us more and more into the image of Christ. Let's pray. 
How gracious you are, O Lord, that you have revealed yourself to us through your word. And God, that we can know you in it. Lord, for we know it is not merely a historical document, although it is, and it's one we can rely on. Lord, it's not merely a great story, though it is that too. Lord, it is the word of life. Lord, it is your direct revelation of yourself. Lord, it is living and it is active and it is sharper than any two-edged sword. So God, I pray that we would be so acquainted with your word that we would easily be able to spot the counterfeits of the world. And God, that we would be prepared to stand against those counterfeits, not just for the purpose of making a bunch of noise, shouting at folks. God, that we might have an opportunity to show people the grace of Jesus. God, that we might be able to point out, yes, this is wrong, but let us show you the way, the truth, and the life. God, help us to not squander those opportunities. Lord, if, is, if we look with spiritual eyes, it is easy for us to see the counterfeits in the world. And it is easy, easy for us to see them being advocated by those, um, often that we know and that we love, that we're near to in, in our work and in our neighborhoods, our schools. But God, I pray that we would look for uh, those counterfeits and that we would use them as an opportunity to stand for the truth and to show people Jesus. God, teach us as a people to think biblically. We know that that starts uh, when we commit to your word on our own. Lord, when we commit to reading it and studying it and knowing you in it. But God, thank you also for the privilege of being able to gather and to uh, hear from it together and to grow in it together. Lord, if we know that your spirit uh, does his work in our hearts when we are in your word. So God... Would you renew our hearts by the transforming of our minds as your spirit continually makes us into a living sacrifice that proclaims the grace of Jesus wherever we are. God, as we have the chance to respond to you today, to respond to the conviction of your spirit in our hearts, as we remember how Jesus purchased our redemption by laying down his life on the cross, or would you bring to mind uh, sin that needs to be repented of? Would you bring to mind relationships that need to be reconciled? God, that we might make those things right. Lord, that they would be washed with your grace. Lord, and then we may experience the forgiveness that uh, Christ guarantees us because of what he accomplished through his death and his resurrection. It's in Jesus' name we pray.